Hello, welcome to the Anchored in Hope Community Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Clevenger, and I'm going to take you along a journey of what I've experienced through being chronically ill and how I function every day, what kind of doctors I see, how I can give you a little bit of tidbits of how to advocate for yourself, but also sharing the fun and the exciting things that I still experience, like being able to be a mom and have a small business and much more. Hello community, I am here with my amazing physical therapist, Amanda Thompson, and we're going to kind of get into a little bit of, I think, everything that she's helped me with, but also kind of an idea of what you can maybe ask your future future physical therapist and questions you need to be asking, but also be aware of. I primarily wanted to do a lot of this podcast to help others advocate for themselves. And that's something that's kind of hard, especially when you're coming in with pain and a past medical history and everything. I'm going to explain how I met her and like how she's helped me and everything. And then we'll go in and I'll ask you questions. Sounds good. Okay. So I actually was referred from my OB to come see you because you emphasize in women's health. So at first I was like, okay, what is this lady going to do to help me while I'm pregnant? I always thought of working out like being really strenuous, having to sweat and, you know, just that hardcore workout you would see on like CrossFit gyms or, you know, any videos you would watch. But that was not the case. And I had to remind myself like, Sometimes just movement is something that helps your body. Coming from a background of dancing all my life, that was a huge adjustment. And I didn't feel like I was really working my body to what I was used to, but my body was in a different season. So you helped me through my pregnancy a lot. (laughs) I think you and a massage therapist and a chiropractor is how I got through it. (laughs) But through that, I kind of have just stayed with you because it's something that's kind of just, I wouldn't say controlled my pain, but at least kept me going and know how to help my body and my flares or whenever something happens. So if you will tell me a little bit about yourself, your family, schooling, hobbies, just spill. Yeah, great. (laughs) So I'm super excited to be here. This has been a dream of mine to do something similar to this, but to be your guest is going to be a huge impact on me. So I grew up in Houston, well, a small town called Humble, which is outside the Houston area. And then I went to undergrad in College Station at Texas A&M and I graduated in 2007. Graduated from high school in 2003, graduated from A&M in 2007, and then I finally finished my doctorate degree in 2013. And so my very first job was at a rural hospital in Bowie, Texas. So I was really not sure what I wanted to do when I was in school. Early on, I wanted to be in the athlete world, and I was an athlete myself, so it kind of came natural. But when it came out to what I wanted to do for work, I liked everything. I liked pediatrics. I liked the elderly. I liked the athletes. I liked acute care. I liked home health. So I was able to work at a facility where I was able to literally see anything that walked in the door because I worked at a rural hospital. And then that hospital shut down. So I started working at Fit and Wise in um, Decatur, Texas. It's a huge facility, but I was already working PRN for the hospital. So I work inpatient rehab and outpatient, primarily outpatient. But I really dove into the women's health world. And specifically SI joint has always been like a specific thing that I've always been very good at. Most of the time, it's because most people think it's a very complicated area. So I started doing women's health and preferably pregnant and postpartum women back in 2015 is when I really started it. But then I really dove into it in 2016 and 17. And so all I treat now is pelvic floor. I treat pregnancy, postpartum, any sort of pelvic pain, SI joint pain. But I also treat people with chronic pain, which is a whole nother entity of therapy. I I love working with all all kinds of people. But the specific thing I like is I don't treat a shoulder as a shoulder. A shoulder is also part of the rest of the body. And so if you're not addressing the whole body as a, as a whole, then you're, you're wasting your time in my opinion. Yeah. 
So I definitely treat very, very differently. But I grew up in Houston and I made my way up here because my husband has a ranch in Alvord, which is a small town outside of here. So we raise cattle. My husband doesn't like people. I love people. So we are very complete opposite people. We have two small children. One's five, about to be six, and the other one's three. I really dove into the women's health because I had issues myself. I had a lot of fertility issues that kind of drew me to different people and and populations. And I feel like I can relate a lot to the issues that my patients have because of my experiences. Yeah. Hobbies? I don't really have any hobbies. (laughs) I work too much. That's part of my problem. But I'm also doing a training with Jessica Drummond. She's part of the Integrative Women's Health Institute, which is a completely different world. It's based on nutrition and how to integrate nutrition into the physical therapy world because she's a pelvic health therapist as well. So my spare time, I do research and try to figure out how else I can help my patients. I used to hunt all the time with my husband, then I had kids, so I don't really hunt anymore. But my kids are getting older, so hopefully we can hunt and fish and do all the fun things. (laughs) Travel. I want to travel again now that my kids are older. I really want to travel. I traveled the world when I was in high school. I was an elite gymnast, and so I traveled traveled the world, um, and I got to travel Europe. And my between it was before nine eleven, so the world was completely different then. But the summer of two thousand, I traveled Europe for three weeks, so that was pretty cool experience, especially as a fourteen year old kid. But I would love to do that again. Going back to how you told me, like, you don't treat just the shoulder. I think that was one of the one things you told me probably, I would guess, like the third time I came in. I was like, okay, this lady's for real. She knows what she's doing. I will never forget. I had a doctor that was a gastroenterologist and it was right when I was getting diagnosed with everything and I had my POTS diagnosis and I went in and I told him like, I have POTS, but I know I have horrible stomach pains. Like, I don't know what's going on. And he stopped me right there and he goes, I'm a below the neck doctor. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was just so shocked. He's like, I don't deal with anything below your neck. Like, and really I stop at this, the stomach. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to run from you. Like, you're not going to do, you're not going to help me. Like, you're not going to look at my body as a whole piece and it's all effective. Like, it all goes together. And so, yeah, I mean, when I'm having neck problems, it's not just neck problems. It goes from everything, like my posture to my back pain to my legs. So I'll give you a really good example. So we're going to kind of dive into the women's health world, but this kind of is specific for anyone. So in the women's health world, I talk about the pelvic floor, what the pelvic floor muscles do, all the organs involved. So in the organ world, we have a bladder, a uterus, and a rectum or colon. We have three doctors. We have a urologist. We have a gynecologist, and we have a GI doctor that look at each individual organ completely separately. Now, there are urogynecologists that do bladder and the uterus, but as a pelvic floor therapist, I do all three in the musculoskeletal world, which sounds astronomical. Why would you have three separate physicians that do three specific things when they are all completely interrelated? Mm -hmm. So that's a specific example for the women's health world, but the same applies to everywhere else. So when I'm assessing someone and someone comes in and they're like, my point, my pain is right here and they can point to it. I acknowledge the pain. I acknowledge where they present with pain. But what I tell my students when they do come in, I tell them I'm actually cheating and I'm watching that patient walk in the door. The text will bring the patients back. I watch them walk in. I watch them sit down. I watch how they move. I watch how they move from the chair to the table and how they're presenting themselves. If they're moving a lot or or where their pain is coming from. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the whole picture and then I really try to dive into what's what's going on in their life. So another good example is if I see someone who's pregnant, I want to know, has she had any other pregnancies? Mm -hmm. If she did, were they live births or did she have miscarriages? And if she did have live births, what was that like? If she had miscarriages, what was that like? Because even if this is your third pregnancy or second pregnancy, everything from the beginning yeah, inner place. Yeah. Yes. 
one so. if she had a traumatic birth or <laughs> like me yes. or you know if it was an easy birth or there was you know whatever stuff went on during it yeah. it is and it's all interconnected so yeah the pelvis doesn't lie. So in my world, the <laughs> pelvis doesn't lie. But if you're coming in with neck pain, I'm also looking at your back and your pelvis as well. So yeah, same thing with like knee and foot pain. If somebody comes in like, my toe hurts, I'm like, hmm, well, how does that person stand? How do they sit? Yeah. So the physical therapy world can be very black and white and they can be complete opposite ends of the spectrum. But if a person is just looking at your great toe as a toe, and they're not looking at the whole chain and how you're walking, how you're running or how you're doing everything else, then they're not looking at the whole picture. Exactly. And that's not even including nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> Which leaves so much more to it. So you kind of already told us why you got into PT, but what what was the thing like you knew, like you wanted to go to school for physical therapy? How did you decide that? That's a really good question. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to do something in the medical field, but I wasn't really sure what. And as an athlete, I was injured all the time. So I did my own rehab. I never went to physical therapy on my own. And then when I went to undergrad, I got a job at a PT clinic. And at that PT clinic, I was like, oh, this is this is great. This is like mm-hmm. super natural and very easy for me to do and very flowy and I could figure it out. But the puzzle piece is what got me. So yeah. I worked with a PT who I had a lot of SI joint pain because of my past and mm-hmm. as a gymnast. And then- I would complain about pain and he'd be like, hmm, I don't know. And he would do it. Now I know what he was doing, but he was yeah, doing he was all these you. special tests and he couldn't figure out what was wrong. And then the people would just give up and they're like, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. You're yeah. going to have to go see X, Y, and Z. And they just kind of wash their hands once they, yeah, they don't meet know. their, you know, end of the book kind of deal. They don't know. I'm sorry. You're going to have to find someone else. Yeah. And so then I worked for someone else and then she figured it out and she's been kind of my mentor since since a long time ago. <laughs> That's awesome. Will you explain the SI joint? I know some people don't oh, necessarily. Yes. So I wish I could have my model out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the SI joint is, so you have pelvis bones and the, the sacrum is your butt bone, not your tailbone. Your tailbone is connected, but your, your sit bones are part of your pelvis and your sit bones come all the way up to the top where your iliac crest is, which is if you grab your top of your hips, you can feel the top of your hips. If you go backwards and put your thumbs on the bony parts, that's your SI joint. A lot of people have dimples right there. That's your PSIS. That's where it connects. And so your SI joint is your sacroiliac joint. It's just where the joints come together. It's a very complicated bone because they're not. there's not very many muscle attachments there. And so ligaments are holding it together, which plays a whole different world when you come to pregnancy and delivering yeah. babies and and hormones and premenopausal and perimenopausal and postmenopausal. So all the hormone changes that happen during our life affect the SI joint. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So I guess you can kind of tell how you came about treating me, but also just chronically ill patients. Like when we come in and we're like, I have this pain and this pain and oh yeah, I have migraines and all of that. Does it overwhelm you or do you get excited? <laughs> is it, I know sometimes you, you even tell me like, I just scratch my head when you come in sometimes, like we got to figure out all the puzzle pieces to everything. So I, I feel like a lot of my patients, I've, for a long time I was chasing pain. Yeah. So early in my career, I was chasing pain. People would come in and they're like, well, this hurts today. Okay, well, let's work on that. Mm-hmm. And then the next time, okay, this, this hurts. And I still feel like I do that in some ways, but What's the root cause? What's right. the what's the problem? So I look at it like a puzzle and I love puzzles. So trying to look at the whole picture, trying to get everyone on the same page. The hardest part is getting all the physicians mm-hmm. on the same page. And I feel like I am the kind of the mediator yeah. and trying to figure Definitely. out who this person needs to see and what needs to be the next. And then I'm maintaining the pain until we can get to that next point. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I'd seen you, if I saw you before I had my chest pain when I was pregnant. It may have been just after it. No, no, I started seeing you before because you, you were the one that was like, maybe you needed to go to a chiropractor. 
And it ended up being that my I had five ribs out of place and that's why I couldn't breathe. <laughs> but all of me and the doctors were like, well, you give me a pain medicine. We've done an echo. Your heart's fine. Like you're functioning fine. I'm like, but I can't breathe. I'm in so much pain. Like this can't be good for me and baby. And then, you know, he fixed me right up and then you could tell later on how it would get out of place and I'd go back to him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's why I think one thing that you're really good about is you realize, okay, I may not be able to help this area, but I know what's going on and that needs to get it addressed first. And I think a lot of people in the physical therapy world, especially PTs that also do manipulations. So I do manipulations, right. but I'm not confident in all of them. And so finding those guru people out there that are local or non-local for my patients that are local here, but I also see people virtually. Mm -hmm. And so trying to be able to find who that next person is to put their hands on that person. Yeah. And my experience is going to be different than another person's experience. And so trying to get a team approach is going to be the key. Yeah. So talking about that, let's go into how to, how do you keep an open line of between the patient and you and also the other doctors that's one thing that I share with you all the time that I struggle so much with and I I know there's probably places out there that do patient advocacy but how do you help your patient one have like the confidence to go talk to another doctor but also make that connection with you and the patient like that's something that has always been hard for me especially when I walk in and that doctor has an attitude or maybe they look like they're in a hurry. Even I think it even took me probably about three visits, three or four visits to be like, oh yeah, well, I also have this pain and I know it's because of this and like actually tell you my full story because I do have that, you know, almost PTSD background of all the, my medical trauma. Like how does, how do you kind of dig deeper into that? So I usually think that the evaluation, the first visit is going to be kind of highlight reel of what's mm-hmm. going on. It's not going to be in depth and you really don't know what's going on with that patient for a few more sessions. I do think the more that you understand what's going on, then the better you can understand for yourself and you can better explain to other people. So I spend like 90% of my first two sessions talking. Yeah. Shocking. But I, the, I show demonstrations. I have models. I use Google all the time to show pictures of what's going on and I can explain the pain, mm-hmm. which makes them feel confident in, oh, yeah, that's why I have X, Y, and Z going on. That makes sense. As far as communication with other physicians. So locally, I have an amazing relationship you with do. the local doctors, especially the OB-GYNs in this area, they, I have so much autonomy with them as far as line of communication and being able to call them if I need anything. Well, you can even text them. You're like, hey, so-and-so's here. I think you might want to get over here. Or if there's an emergency, I'll be able to text Mm -hmm. them and be like, hey, I'm sending a patient over and then I'll have to call them because I can't text phone numbers or patient names. Mm -hmm. But and then the hardest ones are the ones that need to see specialists in the Metroplex because I don't have a good relationship with any of them. I don't know those physicians very well. Yeah. So the squeaky wheel is what I tell my patients. Be a squeaky wheel. Be really annoying and call yeah. and call and call and call. Ask to be on the cancel list. Yeah. But then prior to that doctor's appointment, we are prepping. We are preparing all the things you need to write down with all your symptoms. And then right now I have a patient of mine who is – Nobody can figure out what's going on with her. And she is on a laundry list of things to go to UG Southwestern. I'm really nervous that they're just going to turn her away and be like, mm, sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe mm-hmm. try the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. But then on the flip side, I've had patients come to me from the Mayo Clinic that are local here. They're like, well, I spend this many weeks at Mayo and they still don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. So then I just start working on them and finding their trauma and yeah. trying to figure out what's wrong with them. So. The open line of communication locally is really good with my local docs. It's also word of mouth. So if a, if a patient of mine has a really good experience with a physician in the Metroplex, then I'm like, okay, I need that doctor's information. Yeah. Yeah. Usually the doctors that I that the patients enjoy 
also are happy that I have found that them, right. whichever direction it is. So they, both parties want to communicate so that we can have a really good communication with, about the patient specifically. I use Facebook and Instagram for all my patients. <laughs> I tell them that's the easiest way to get a hold of me because going through my office staff is really difficult. I'm a pretty open book. I offer a lot of virtual things and I have, I'm not from here, from where, where we live, but I have people that are reaching out to me from high school yeah. that now live in Austin or San Antonio and several that live in Houston that have lots of questions. And if I can't answer it, or if I can't treat them virtually, then I'm going to search a provider in their area. Well, and that's, that's one thing I do enjoy about you and like is like, okay, I want to treat you and I want to help you, but like you are a case that I can't physically meet up with you or you're almost to the point where I can't do much more for you. Like you don't wash your hands with a patient. You're like, okay, let's go try to find someone else. And that's hard to come by. Like that's, <laughs> and especially in the medical world of things, uh, it's fast pace and there's all sorts of red tape and things you can and can't do, but you do your best to. And I think it was probably the second time that I saw you like, yeah, here's my name and go find me on Facebook. And <laughs> that's how you can contact me. Now I have your number because we're pretty much friends <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your patient. But yeah, I think that's the hard thing on like the experience of the chronically ill patient is just like you're saying, you try to find that trauma. And sometimes, I mean, we discovered some trauma I knew I had it, but I didn't know how depth it was. Obviously, some from my my pregnancy and, and birth, but even back before then, going through and talking through it is, yeah, it's hard to kind of unpack all of that. And I think the thing, I think I finally caught on. I don't know how how many of the sessions I had with you. I think you may have had a, a student at that time, and. <laughs> I, I laugh because I now see you do this with other patients. You'll send your student over there and be like, hey, go ask them how they're feeling. Like, ask these questions. And they'll come back and be like, you know, they said they're fine, but she looks like she's in a lot of pain. Like, you, you teach them how to read them. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you'll ask me in the beginning when you first meet, how are you doing? And then 20 minutes later, okay, how are you really doing, Alexis? <laughs> like, can you please just tell me? Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes... With chronically being chronically ill, but also having that pain, like you kind of just tell your body to shut off and you don't always tell everyone because a lot of people are like, how are you doing? And they don't want to hear, well, I'm in pain. It's a 10 of a 10. I can't really see straight out of migraine. And like, you don't want to go into the entire list of what's happening in your body because one, that overwhelms them. And two, like they just don't know how to take that in. And so... I have to remind myself when I'm seeing you or any other doctor, when they ask, they really do want to know how I'm feeling. It's not just like a friend I'm seeing off the street. Exactly. It's kind of hard to toggle in between those two. Well, and pain is relative to each person. Right. And pain is relative to each day. Yeah. So what's the source of pain? Is the source of pain fatigue because you didn't sleep all night because you have a newborn baby and now mm -hmm. you're fatigued and you're in pain? Or is right. the pain truly because the weather's changing or know what's going on. I think the biggest thing that it took me until I got certified with the Institute for Birth Healing that I didn't realize I was an empathic person. <laughs> I had no idea what that was. I didn't have a clue. I think everybody look at you look at people in in different ways, but I can usually sense how that patient's doing and so I usually let them try to tell me how they're doing and then I kind of dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. You can't teach that. No. So I try to, well, I've been very, very blessed in the fact that I have had some amazing students that are able to figure out how to catch on to that. And mm -hmm. it's even better because social media allows me to follow them through their careers. Yeah. And what may have presented maybe when they were with me, they, I was, a, I'm able to see their journey to yeah. becoming of more of an empathic person to be able to read people and figure out what's going on. Yeah. That's the one thing I love about social media is, you know, it, it can be a good tool and finding a community. And I think you even kind of pushed me a little bit of when I, I told you, I was, it was very 
difficult because when we moved here, I was I was already sick, and we lived in Denton, which is a pretty big town, and then we were 45 minutes away, and I couldn't even drive. I could barely drive to Decatur, which was 15 minutes away from me. And you're like, okay, well, how do you how do you find a community? And you really pushed me to kind of step outside my comfort zone and find people, even if it was online, to like connect with because there are tons of people that still deal with this. But also, if they're not sick, like you can still have a relationship with them, and it does take some figuring out of. How much do you share? Do you share too much? And kind of just, like you're saying, fill someone out and figure out if they are, you know, that kind of friend that you do dive deep in with or it's just more of a occasional, like, we'll hang out and stuff. So, yeah, I, it's one thing that's been cool. Okay, so this is one thing that I, I think I struggle with, and I know it's different for every patient and even, like, whatever they're dealing with. But can you talk about... When it's good to use heat or ice, can you overdo it with heat or ice? I feel like I use my heating pads way too often. And I know that sometimes I will get like, you know, that heat rash of, and I've, can you talk about like just what were the general rules, I guess, of, of using that? I have a big rule with ice, but the biggest thing is like what feels good at that moment. So in the physical therapy world or even in the athletic training world, we use a lot of what are called modalities. They're very passive treatments. So if you go to a physical therapist and they're just using modalities, modalities are heat, ice, electrical stimulation, ultrasound, laser, anything that's not hands-on and or exercise. And so it used to be super popular in the 90s. That's all. If you went to a physical therapist, that's all they did. Mm-hmm. Typically, if you go to a chiropractor now, well, at least in the rural, more rural areas, I'm not sure about the city. There are some that don't, but most of them will set you up on heat and stem. They'll do a manipulation. Yeah. They might even do some traction, which we'll talk about later. But they're not hands-on. They're not teaching you exercises. So used to be really common. Now insurance doesn't pay for it at all. So if they do it, in a clinic, then it's typically to buy themselves a little bit time between patients, but insurance doesn't pay for it. So nobody wants to do it anymore because they don't get paid for it. At home, I tell people, do what feels good. So we have portable e-stem units. E-stem is, it can be TENS is a, is a common, well, what that is, but it's yeah. e-stem is TENS. It's the same thing. But how that works is it's a pain blocking mechanism. So if I have pain on my shoulder, the pain pathway to my brain and the vibration pathway to my brain is the same pathway. So if I block, if I put the stem or the vibration on my shoulder where I have pain, the thought process is, or the theory is to block the pain receptors to my brain. So it kind of makes it go away. In the PT world, we like to use them to buy ourselves time in the beginning, but it's really to calm everything down. And then that way we can work on the tissue and exercise the tissue in a more calmed down manner. So TENS machines at home are great. You can actually use a TENS machine all day long if you want to. They have um, heat and stem. I always tell people or heat and stem is better than ice and stem. Ice is a 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off. If you have an injury, the first 48 hours you want to ice it pretty often. But after 20 minutes of ice, your body does the exact opposite of what you want it to do. And so Mm -hmm. when I see people two or three weeks post-op and they're still using their ice mans, like, okay, no more ice man. Because (laughs) after 20 minutes, your body thinks it's freezing itself. So it's going to send more blood and oxygen, which is then going to cause more swelling. Yeah. Ice is going to be good after an initial injury. Most of my chronic pain Mm -hmm. patients hate ice. And so- I tell people heat is good, but heat, if it's on a machine, like a just one that you can get at Walmart, usually they have an automatic shut off. Yeah. You want it to be a comfortable heat, but not um, like burning. You want to scald your skin. <laughs> incisions are really careful. You have to be really careful over incisions or areas that are a little bit less um, sensitive, like over C-section scars or even like a knee surgery scar. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you can't really do too much heat unless you burn yourself. So yeah. 20 minutes is good and then 20 minutes off. But ice, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off. 
I think the only time I use ice is when I have migraines. Like that will help to like yeah. lay on it on the back of my head. Mm-hmm. And they even have I need to get one. But they have like like ice caps <laughs> that you freeze and you look ridiculous, but I, I've heard they help. Yeah, heating heat is is my friend for sure. And it's <laughs> yeah, it's it makes it a feel good thing. It may, yeah. makes your tissues have lots of blood and oxygen to them. Mm-hmm. So, well, I always joke with you, like, it's my time to go to the spa when you put me right. on heat instead. <laughs> Sometimes I actually do kind of nod off. <laughs> a lot of people do. Because it's just, like, relaxing. And it's your time that you get to just, you have to stay still and be there. So, right. Yeah. Okay, so you were telling us a little bit about the, you called it modality, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk about, and I know this one will be, like, a long explanation, but, like, the taping, cupping, we already hit stem and heat sonogram which you kind of did with me for my leg pain water therapy is just another form of therapy but kind of just those were things I knew existed but I didn't know that you used them with physical therapy and exercises and all of that mm-hmm. so can you explain a little bit of each Yes. So kinesio taping is widely used in the physical therapy world. Most people recognize it from the Olympics. So mm-hmm. it's the cute tape that everybody has on their body parts that most of the time I notice it on the beach volleyball players. The point is not the tape itself. In some ways, it's putting the tape in a position to for you to use your body in a better way. Mm-hmm. So I use it a lot for posture. So I use it on people's backs. I use it on people's (laughs) shoulders. And so what I'm doing is I'm putting the tape in a position to preserve your muscles and make you use the muscles that you're supposed to use. Mm -hmm. You just don't know that that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Well, Um, I do now. (laughs) And then we use it a lot for swelling or edema. So swelling, if you have a joint that's a lot of swelling or lymphedema, People can use kinesio tape. So whenever you see different patterns of it, it's it's used for such a wide variety of things. It can be used for point tenderness pain. What's really cool is there's a lot of free videos out there. So if you literally YouTube mm-hmm. kinesio tape for ankle pain, you'll get like 50 different videos yeah. of different ways to tape it. I always tell people the less tape, the better because most people can't tape in three different ways or fashions. The colors don't mean anything. They're just pretty. <laughs> so in our pediatric department, I I just asked the kids, I'm like, do you want pink or blue or black? It, they don't mean anything. Yeah. The brands are the brands can be a little bit different. So there is a kinesio tape brand and there's a rock tape brand and there's other brands out there. Kinesio tape is a little more gentle on the skin in my world. I treat a lot of people with sensitive skin, especially my pregnant patients that have sensitive bellies or sensitive skin just from being pregnant because that changes the whole life. And then the rock tape is a little bit more harsh, but it does stick a little bit better. I like the rock tape better. mm -hmm. It's kind of – it's weird. I react more to the kinesio tape Mm -hmm. than I do the rock. And I don't know. It's probably just the makeup of the the adhesive. Adhesives, yeah. I don't – I and so it. we have both at the clinic and I just do whatever – I know each person I tell, I'll put, a, I usually put a little piece on them. If you have a latex allergy or an adhesive allergy, typically you don't do well with it, but some people like it so much that they'll wear it for a short duration of yeah. time. Yeah. Cupping is new as well. Again, you're going to notice it on the, usually I notice all the things on the Olympics and then they start really getting out of control. So I remember seeing swimmers and they would have yeah, this pretty recent. Hickeys. It's been the last like what five years? Yeah, or more, Michael maybe? Michael Phelps. I noticed his were really bad during yes. the Olympic, not the last Olympics, but the Olympics before. Yeah. And they're huge hickeys on their <laughs> their bodies. There's, yeah, I sent you a picture of. <laughs> yes, of my, oh, yes. <laughs> I bruise very easily, so it was very prominent. <laughs> so kinesio tape, I use it for postural to get your muscles in a position that they don't have to work so hard. Now. Cupping can be used for multiple different ways, but in general, I use it to not as a deep tissue massage mechanism, but you have different layers under your skin to the muscle. So there's, it's not just like skin and muscle. There's a lot of things going on in there. Mm -hmm. And so the point of the cupping is to pull the skin and the fascia away from the muscle. And then 
your more blood and oxygen and all the things kind of all the feel good stuff go to that area to heal it. So cupping can be used as a stationary place. It can be put on and like left there for X amount of time. And then it can also be used um, as a movable area. So we'll lotion it up. You put it on your back. We can make you like hug yourself or in back and you're moving your, your body in response with the cupping attached to you. Different brands. There's like 500 different brands. Not really, but there's a lot of different brands of, of cupping as well. Some of them actually you light a fire, you light a yeah. match. and Just then kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, there's are silicone, you burning me? There's silicone ones and then there's pump pump ones. I like the pump ones, but I like the silicone ones for my scars. Yeah. I had it done. I had a hernia repair and I had really bad scars after my hernia repair. So I got somebody to cup them and it does not feel great, but then the scars are beautiful and perfectly fine. So I do it a lot on C-section scars. Mm-hmm. Dry needling is another technique that people do. So dry needling is, I always describe it as, dry needling is the exact same needles as acupuncture. So we're not drawing anything out of it. We are literally going into the muscle tissue itself. So if you have a trigger point or not in your muscle, upper trap is kind of the most common one because people rub their necks all the time and I have a knot right here. So Mm -hmm. what we do is we go take the needle and we go directly into the muscle tissue. So be like as if you had a deep tissue deep tissue massage multiple times in a row. Yeah. Some people get a histamine response, which means they kind of have like an allergic reaction type thing. They get kind of rashy. They get hot flashy. I'll get like my face will be flushed. Flushed. But that's not how I know that it's actually working and you hit the right spot. And And then it typically goes away. And so what we're trying to do is release the muscle tissue from the inside out. So it's a really I like it because it's a quick fix for what would take me like 10 sessions to massage that muscle out. Yeah. We can get a little bit deeper. And then you've kind of played around with like the different positions of where you can put them. Mm-hmm. And I think the back of the neck at like my base of my skull that has helped my migraines a migraines, whole lot for sure and one of my friends came to you and <laughs> she you know it was I forgot what the first reaction felt like because we've been doing it for so long mm-hmm. and I'm just used to like the fatigue and the little bit of like I feel like it does release toxins and you do feel tired by the end of the day. But I just plan for that. Like I know that I'm going to need a good nap after we do dry needling. But it does, I feel like it really does like draw everything out and help relax those areas a lot quicker. Then we need to know how long does that last? Does it last two days, four days, six days, or does it last until... Yeah, it's a trade-off. Worth it. Exactly. Is this helping or hurting you or is it just kind of keeping you stagnant? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that was another kind of point of the, now I'm way more comfortable telling you, like, I'm getting really fatigued, even if we've done like three exercises and I'm like, you know, I can't, I can't do much more. And so you, you'll either stop or like redirect me into a different thing or you'll be like, okay. Or I'll come in in the morning and you already know just walking you, you know, watching or walking that I'm, I'm not doing well. So fatigue is a really good hard thing one. to talk about for chronic pain. Yeah. So if you are, everybody knows the number scale from zero to 10, zero is no pain, 10 is emergency room pain. Mm-hmm. Nobody can see fatigue and nobody can really see pain unless there's like a nail in your arm. Like, well, of course that hurts. But fatigue is huge. If you walk into somewhere and you're rolling in at an 8 out of 10 fatigue and you really need to take a nap, if I exercise you more, you're not going to tolerate it well. Yeah. And then you're going to regress and do worse the next day because you're already at a fatigue level. So I like to stay between a 4 and a 6 fatigue level. So if somebody comes in at a 5, then I might spend a little more time doing body work and more stretching and still some movement, but we're not strenuating the exercises to where we're fatiguing the muscles out because that's going to do more damage than good. And that's where a lot of my patients have done physical therapy in the past. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I'm not going to do well in physical therapy because I did terrible. I would end up way worse. Or you can describe what happened to you prior. So this program is really well known. And if you are a POTS patient, you've probably heard of it. 
I actually do not remember like the exercise, but basically right when I got diagnosed, I was sent to go to physical therapy and it was all on a recumbent bike. And there was basically like a guide of, okay, your heart rate's going to be here. If you get any higher, you have to stop and well, not completely stop. You'll just, you know, you'll take all the tension off and you'll be just exercising lightly and then you can go back up. So it, I got to the point where I was doing, I would see them once or twice a week and then I would have to do those exercises on my own. And my husband, well, my boyfriend at the time, but husband now would take me and we would go to Planet Fitness. And by the end of it, I would be passing out like nurses or doctors or even firefighters that would be working out with us they'd be like, is she okay? Can I help you? Sometimes even like the manager would come over. I remember one time he like came and gave me muscle milk and I was like, I'm going to vomit. Like (laughs) I can't, I can't take that. Like it was, it was awful. I, and, but we had these doctors and physical therapists telling me like, just keep pushing through it. Like you'll get to the point where your body starts adapting and you'll get better and you can do that. And I think they found in some instances bodies can react to that, but mine was, it was just basically killing me. Like it was just making me so much worse and I wouldn't even have time to recover from my first, you know, if I exercised on, on, on Monday, I did some light, like weight training, which was, you know, not, not anything really. And then I'd go back to doing the bike again on Wednesday, like, I didn't have, I was like, you're explaining the fatigue. My fatigue would be maxed out. And finally I realized like it was not helping me. I, my parents and Zach at the time, they were like, we just got to keep doing this. Like we got to listen to them at that. And I, I think at that point I really realized that it's not a one size fits all. And these doctors, you know, may have seen this work for XYZ patient, but for me, it's just hurting me. You know, like I shouldn't be passing out while I'm working out. I shouldn't have to have assistance to get out no. of of the gym. Like that's, that's not normal. And so at that point, I really had to be an advocate for myself and realize you know, my family and and my husband wanted what's best for me, but they also didn't, didn't know that, you know, this is not normal. This is not what should be happening. And your body, you know, I think I did it for almost six months. It was a long time, maybe, maybe four, but it was long enough to be like, I like, I can't do this anymore. This is, and so I came in seeing you and I had that, that preconceived of what physical therapy was. And I had done physical therapy in the past, but with my new body of chronic pain and all of that, I was very afraid of that. And I think I let you know early on, but that was, yeah, I was just like, I can't, I can't do that again, especially when I was pregnant. I was like, I don't know how you're going to help me. <laughs> but, you know, we, we delved deeper and really figured out what was causing me pain and, the taping helped, the stem helped. We the talked water. We haven't talked about water yet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. That was that was interesting. I I will share <laughs> when you told me I was gonna do water therapy, I actually told both my grandmas at the time and my one of my grandmas had done that before. And I was <laughs> like, I'm gonna be the youngest one in there. And I was. <laughs> Other than the physical therapist herself. But it was fun. They they were all very sweet and it was it was good to and I love getting my patients that are pregnant in there because the water serves us for buoyancy. Mm-hmm. So it takes all the weight off of our joints and you can do a lot more exercises yeah. in the water than you can tolerate on land. But it also supplies us with natural resistance. So we're taking gravity off of our pelvis and we're still able to move a little bit easier. So a lot of my pregnant patients do get in the water, especially the the further along they get. We want to get that baby off the pelvis so that we can have a little bit more mobility. Because when you go into labor, labor is a marathon followed by a sprinting at the end. So if your body's not prepared for that, then your recovery is going to be really difficult. And in today's world, we're just expected to just jump right back on the bandwagon and get rolling. And a lot of times that's really, really difficult for a lot of people to do. So I love water therapy. It's very good. 
The older patients love it because it gets their weight off of their joints. Mm -hmm. But our therapists that are in the water do a really good job challenging the patient and adding more. And we get athletes in there too. So if yeah. you have an ACL reconstruction, you're still really limited with weight bearing, then we're going to get you in the water and do a whole lot of plyometrics and jumping and stuff like that so that you can be really mobile yeah. without the weight of gravity. When I felt a lot more relaxed too, like you said, like it does get all of your weight off your body. So I could move a lot easier and it did help. And people with EDS, we haven't really dove into EDS, but yeah. people with EDS or even MS or any kind of neuro diagnoses or joint instability, they do really well in the water because they have so much pain on their joints all the time. Yeah. And when we can unweight the joints and strengthen, then they feel better and it's amazing. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> we talk about, is it it's the sauna therapy. You did that last time for me. So um, it's actually ultrasound. So right. ultrasound okay. is similar to the ultrasound you get for a sonogram for whenever, you, especially like babies or like when they look at your kidneys and stuff like that. But the difference is the frequency. So in the physical therapy world, it's a different wavelength. And so it supplies with a deep heat modality. So what a hot pack would or a heating pad would go on the surface of the skin and get just a little bit below the surface of the skin, the ultrasound's going to penetrate a little bit deeper. There's different settings that we use for different reasons, different settings for different body parts. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a very small area because all that the ultrasound can do is the the head of the ultrasound for four of those just right next to each other. So there's it can be a really large area. And then I use a different ultrasound for imaging for some of my pelvic floor stuff. Not everyone I do it on, but I can look at the bladder and the pelvic floor muscles externally by looking at the muscles through a sonogram, just like if you're going to see what the baby looks like whenever you are pregnant. But it's a different wavelength. So it's a deep heat modality versus an image that's popped back up at you. Yeah. There's so many different things that you can use. It's crazy. We kind of already hit on that one. Can can you talk a little bit more about like the research side of it? We kind of went through how you refer out to different, different doctors, but I think when I word vomited everything that I had, you knew a good amount of it, but some of it you're like, I'm going to have to go Google that, which a lot of people are like in the beginning when doctors would tell me that it really scared me. But now, now I realize that's just them doing their job and going and researching, figuring out what what you deal with. So when I come to you and I have a new diagnosis or even just in different patients, how do you go about, if you're completely just caught off guard, you've never heard of that, you know, disease or, or whatever, how do you go about well, starting? Well, <laughs> Well, usually if it's a brand new patient and I have no idea what the diagnosis is, which usually if you're coming in for therapy, the diagnosis is pain. Like it, sometimes it'll just say pain and the patient's like, oh, but I also have blank. And so whatever that diagnosis is, most of the time I've heard of it, even the really rare ones, but I may not remember exactly what it is. So mm-hmm. I always bring my computer into my evaluation <laughs> and I may or may not be Googling it while the patient is talking and spilling their beans to me because I really just need to remember, jolt my memory on what it is. Yeah. The worst thing I could do is is tell someone that I don't know what that is and not figure out how I can Not follow it. up with it. And, and it's and really it. not like... If you have a rare diagnosis, it's not like I'm not trying to diagnose it and I'm not trying to treat it medically. I need to know what are there, are there precautions? Can I not do X, Y, and Z? Are there, mm-hmm. am I not allowed to do electrical stimulation? Am I not allowed to do heat? How would that patient respond to exercise? Someone that has a diagnosis of MS or multiple sclerosis is going to respond differently than someone that has, you know, another diagnosis. And yeah. so, Taking that into consideration is going to be huge. But in the world of physical therapy, we kind of get in our own little world and we we get in a cookie cutter mode. And I find that I do a lot of coursework. So I took a course two weeks ago online. COVID's been the best thing for my education because <laughs> everything's virtual now. And I have, and two, small, do this I have two small kids. 
now that can like occupy themselves. And so I sit on the computer and educate myself. But I'm not a huge person into the evidence-based, although my program where I got my doctorate degree would shame me for that. There are research people out there. I am I want to do what works best for the patient. But if I get a random thing that I don't know what it is, I'm going to Google it for the precautions. Yeah. And how do I best treat that patient? What? How do they respond? The very first day I spend so much time educating the patient and trying to figure out, okay, what have you done in the past and that hasn't worked? Okay, we're not going to do that again because that's not going to work. Yeah, it didn't help. Or we're going to try it in a different way. I'll be honest. I Google a lot of things just really to see what it is because most of the time in the therapy world, it's there's not enough research out there, right? especially pregnant. That's why everybody's scared to treat pregnant people because they're like, oh, there's no research on that. Yes. Nobody wants to do well, research Well, even when it a- comes to medication, I was on a certain medication and they're like, well, we don't know. It was never tested. I'm like, okay, well, what medications do you have that have been tested? Like it is, yeah, pregnancy, it's like just like that little black box of yeah, we're going to keep it over there and we'll just, you know. But I like puzzles. So when people come in with a rare diagnosis, I'm like, hmm. I remember two specific different people. I'm like, they went to the Mayo Clinic and they couldn't figure out what's wrong. And then I worked with them for a period of time. And if I can do one treatment and either decrease your pain or or change your pain, if I can increase, if I can reproduce it, yeah, then I can fix it. Mm-hmm. May not take six weeks like a shoulder pain impingement would. Or it may not be like a total knee replacement that I can tell you between six and nine months, you're going to feel like a whole new human. It may be a really long time, but that that pattern of pain and the amount of progress is going to be different for each person. And so by providing as much education as I can for the patient, as well as the resources for other things, that's going to be what kind of gets them a little bit further along in the game than just treating the one thing. Yeah. So with the whole Googling thing, when we talk about EDS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, first of all, I hate the word syndrome because it's always just like, like we were talking before, it's just a collection of symptoms or things that are happening in your body. But when you go and Google EDS, it just basically says you have stretchy skin, which is, yeah, some people do. I do, but it's not. It's not what it is fully. And I think that's the difficult thing of of those diagnoses, but like EDS and, and, and with that, like it affects your whole body. Like it affects my blood flow. It affects how my body is held up with my tendons. Your organs, and all the things. Yeah, it's, so again, it's an ongoing thing. EDS is something that somebody has to treat the whole person. Somebody yeah. with EDS may have neck pain, but they also have their organs are going to move in a different way because the connective tissue holding the organs is not the same as someone that doesn't have EDS. Mm-hmm. EDS, if you Google it, if you Google fibromyalgia, if you Google some of these things that are just a conglomerate of symptoms, the physicians sometimes will not know what to do. So they find categories to place people in. Yeah. Then all the medication is doing is managing the symptoms, which usually is pain. Then you end up going into a chronic pain cycle. Yes. So there's a book. Oh, it's called, I think it's called Why Do I Have Pain or Why Do You Have Pain? But it's based on neuroscience. And so I like it because it's really easy to read. It's a quick, easy, like 50 page book. But a lot of people don't even understand their pain. So EDS is a connective tissue dysfunction. Well, if I chase the pain with EDS, if the patient only has EDS, I also know that they are going to have joint instability. So they're going to roll their ankles a little bit more. They're going to pop their joints out of place a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Their pregnancy is going to be a little bit more complicated because they're so loosey-goosey. Then they're also at high risk for pelvic organ prolapse because the connective tissue internally is not going to be the same as someone without it. So you have to be able to manage their symptoms, their pain, but also manage how they are for the rest of their lives. Yeah, We are getting our kiddos in diagnosed with EDS or hypermobility syndrome early on, like mm-hmm. preteen, which is scary because- yeah. We have to figure out how to help them manage their symptoms for the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's not a cookie cutter, six weeks of therapy, and you're done. It's well, and even it. just there's 
I know that there are 13 subsets, and but I think they're even now researching more and more are coming out. But each person that has EDS is not like the other person. Exactly. Whereas, you know, some diagnosis is like they're going to present this way and that's how that is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest thing is, like you said, the, the doctors will put you in that box. And sometimes not the best doctors will be like, well, you have EDS, so you're going to have pain. But not it's not necessarily EDS pain. It may be like EDS is the underlying cause. Like I believe that's the underlying cause of my POTS and a lot of other things I have. And so having to go in and treat those each little things, like I got stents placed in for my May Therners. Well, EDS most likely caused that because it was a blood flow issue and those things worked together. But yeah, it's something that is hard to treat and it's not the same for everyone. Right. And yeah, it's, but I think the the things that we do together really does help like the taping. Well, and you, you tape very different for different body parts. And sometimes you use like the anchor and you, I don't know, fan it out. Can mm-hmm. you explain why you do that for some of my pain and so the fanning out can be used for edema or swelling, but it's also used as a compression. So specifically your more recent diagnosis, which you can explain because I'm not, <laughs> is a, a lot of compression is going to help with that or weighting the leg down or the arm down or providing it with a little bit more input. Mm-hmm. And so the taping, you can you can literally Google anything on YouTube for... Yeah taping, but it's mostly for edema and or compression. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome, um, November 1st, which is kind of comical in a way because that was the awareness day of that syndrome. So you tape, we've been trying new things for, you know, last two weeks since I got diagnosed with it because we knew I had all this leg pain for my varicose removal veins. And it didn't make sense. You know, that surgery is supposed to be a in and out thing. Like you get it done outpatient and then you go home that day, mm-hmm. which I did. But I had so much pain right after. And it wasn't talking back with my doctor. I ha- I was feeling the pain through light anesthesia and lidocaine. And he's like, that's not normal. <laughs> you shouldn't be, you know, experiencing that much pain. And luckily, he was able to kind of figure that out. But we've done the ultrasound therapy and the taping. I think the taping helped them most so far is what I would say. But because it did, I felt like it really got my blood flow kind of moving a little bit more. And I felt like it kind of kept me stable. And I did that on a on a lymphatic pathway. Yeah. So following the lymphatic drainage pattern, which is Googleable too. <laughs> it should be your friend, Google. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on or tell us about yourself? You have the above. Going to hit everything right now. No, I I hope that if you're listening that you learned something. <laughs> but the biggest thing is if you don't feel like you're being treated right by your physician or even your physical therapist or any other medical provider, you don't have to stay there. It's yeah. your decision and you have to learn to be your own advocate for yourself. So you just like anything in life, everything happens for a reason and you need to figure out how to be your best advocate. Mm-hmm. If you're having still having pain and people are not addressing you or you feel like you're being ignored, move on. Somebody else, you're going to find somebody else in your life that's yeah. going to be able to uplift you and figure out what's going on. Yeah. I heard one time, you know, you can fire your doctors and your healthcare workers. Yes. <laughs> like, just because they're who you got referred to or that's who you've been seeing for X amount of time. Yeah. If they're not working for you, then you need to find someone that can. And I've heard a lot of stories about the physical therapy world specifically, but physicians too. And them, honestly, I'll be real, the medical community right now is in complete burnout mode. Oh, yeah. So in all areas. And so it may not be you specifically that they are mm-hmm. frustrated with. overwhelmed in general. They're exhausted. Yeah. None of us have stopped working, period, before COVID, but especially during COVID. Yeah. So- it's been nonstop and the healthcare world is burnout hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. It's, it's a horrible situation, but 
you still have to take care of yourself and advocate for you and find what helps you best. And and I have a problem saying no. So if anybody has questions specific for them, you can follow me on Instagram, <laughs> Dr. Amanda Thompson PT. And I'm usually going to at least find someone in your area that can help you a little bit better. Yeah. Connect you somehow. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks. So exciting. Thank you. (laughs) All right. We will talk to you all next time. Bye.